thing, but they certainly are protective. You're not getting, yeah. you're not getting through there. Yeah, they got a big family. Anything could happen. 
No, no, I didn't turn it down. Yeah, I think we should go down a couple degrees and maybe it's too steady.
Good morning. Welcome on this uh, wintry morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, as usual, uh, tithes and offerings we're taking again in our in our offering box there. Uh, Andrea's contact number for the prayer chain, days of praise and acts and facts are abundantly available. And if you haven't done your update on the board for birthdays, anniversaries, address, and uh, please do that. We uh, are canceling the communion for today and they're moving that up to January, uh, the first week in January, uh, so that everybody's aware. And I have a little bit of an update on Clara May. Uh, infection in both legs, a blood infection, but she is talking and alert. Now, Terry, do you have any more to expand on that, or is that basically it, huh? Okay. Well, we need to really give her give her consideration for prayer. And if you, yes. Well, I don't know. You're not hearing me. No. Maybe it's turned off in the back. I'll just try and speak a little. Louder. Um, take a look at our church praying. I mean, it's better. It's it's a half a page here. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine all the sickness that this church has gone through over the forty plus years that I've been here as a member. Every single family in this church has been affected in one way or another. But the Lord has sustained us and will continue to sustain us in these moderate times. And I would ask you to go over this list and really concentrate on it. The people that are, are down, laid aside, the, the loss that we've suffered in the last few years with our, our seniors. So please give that commitment to, uh, to pray for these folks. And... Uh, Our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, and that's page 1072 in your pew Bible.
you kindly stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? George, my brother, would you lead us in prayer? Amen. Please remain standing. We take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 123. 123 in the brown.
favorite Christmas hymn? Andrew, your hand is up before you even sat down. Do you have a favorite Christmas hymn, buddy? <coughs> One more time, because I missed it. One, three, six in the brown. Is this your favorite? One of your favorites. One, three, six. <laughs> you do, especially with those people in the back. <clears throat>
From the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, will be our scripture reading for the day. Page 1496 in your pew Bible. Please stand with us as we engage in the reading. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab father of Nashon, Nashon father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, Jerome the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiliel, Shatiliel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Father in heaven, may you have your blessings added to this reading of your holy and inspired word. Take your red hymnal this time and turn to number 198, 198 in the red. Thank you. 
Thank you. You may be seated. Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Today, as I usually do every year, I want to begin a short series dealing with the incarnation of God realized in the birth of his son, Jesus. Our text comes from the book of Matthew, which is known as the Gospel of the Kingdom, and for good reason. Matthew deals with Jesus as the promised coming king, not only in Israel, so we're thinking of the Davidic kingdom, but also of the entire Gentile world steeped in paganism up until and including the time of Christ. We have no present-day familiarity with kingdoms and monarchs since the founding of our republic on July 4, 1776. But even then, our new form of government was brought and paid for by the blood of our immigrant population who fought to overthrow King George's tyrannical hold on our people, our commerce, and our land. Freedom isn't always free, is it? Sometimes it has to be won, fought for. The world of politics up to that time knew only of kings and queens and monarchs and potentates. Yes, with some liberties, yes, in the Greek city-states, and to a degree under Roman occupancy, but nothing like America's experiment in democracy based on rule so aptly put by Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address, where he said, this is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Until this time, the world governments were all from the top down. By which I mean, there were the rulers, and then the aristocracy, and then the professionals. Think of the professors, the teachers, the lawyers. And then, on the bottom of the totem pole, the peasants. No middle class. No middle class. None. This phenomenon left and continues to leave a bad taste in our mouths concerning any idea of a monarchy, of a king whose position of rule is hereditary, that is in line with the previous rulers, and whose authority and power to rule is all-encompassing and autocratic. 
What the king wants, he gets. What the king says goes. No ifs, ands, or buts. We don't like that. And if there are any dissenters or conscientious objectors, not to mention anarchists or subversives, there was imprisonment or the death sentence, depending on the will of the king, in power. No wonder we have a nightmare in thinking about all of this. We resist with all of our being any idea of a monarchy ruled by a king. We like democracy. We don't like monarchy. This has come to the fore even in our democracy with the recent revocation of the National Security Administration's wide sweep of tactics of phone surveillance. This was reported in the Reuters report. A U.S. spying program that systematically collects millions of Americans' phone numbers, phone records, is illegal. A federal appeals court ruled, and that was on Thursday of November 2015. Putting pressure on Congress to quickly decide whether to replace or to end the controversial anti-terrorism surveillance, according to the Reuters report. While the government tried to mollify this revelation by whistleblower Edward Snowden by saying that the only information gathered was, oh, well, it's just megadata. Megadata is things like uh, phone numbers, the frequency of the call, and so on and so forth, but no content of what was said in those calls. But guess what? The American people didn't buy it. No, they're listening to what we're saying, not just the fact that we use a phone number somewhere. And they considered it to be government overreach, a spying on its own people. Even if the motive of a spouse was to catch terrorists who use cell phones to communicate their evil intent to maim and destroy and kill Americans. Isn't that astounding? Think of this. Americans value their freedom from government control and government manipulation so much that they are willing to jeopardize discovery of a planned terrorist attack if it means that Big Brother is listening into their private phone conversations. You're not going to do that. They argued and fought. So here we are in a gospel account in which Matthew gives us Jesus' pedigree, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The references to David, the king, and to Abraham, the spiritual father of the nation, Israel, and of all believers. Now take a look at verse 6 and following, and just read some of the names. David, Solomon, 
Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, then verse 10, Hezekiah, then verse 11, Josiah, and so on. Who are these men? Well, they are all kings in the kingdom of David, Solomon, and thereafter. What is Matthew's intent, including these names, in his history? He is showing the royal line into which Jesus, who is called Christ, verse 16, was born. What's the point that he's making? Well, Matthew is displaying in no uncertain terms that Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, is a descendant of the kings in the Davidic line of rulers to whom God proclaimed, Your house, your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. To which David replied, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you. As we have heard, with our own ears. Second Samuel 7, verse 18 and following. So Matthew's genealogy is meant to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to King David. But he's not alone in this understanding. The prophet Isaiah the, said the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him, Emmanuel, which means God's son or God with us. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Two chapters later in Isaiah. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And what? The government will be on his shoulders. So he's a king, right? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. More terms on government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Because he's David's son. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. So there's a kingdom that's promised with regard to David. And it's a perpetual kingdom. It goes on. The constituency of Jesus' kingdom is mentioned in verse 3. Judah, 
whose father was Jacob. And when Jacob was about to die, he gathered his children together, all twelve of them, and he proceeded to bless each child. And you have to understand in Old Testament times, such blessings carried the authority of God's word as a prophecy. Jacob's blessing for Judah was this. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and he lies down like a lioness. And who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. Hmm. In other words, till the rightful ruler comes. And the obedience of the nations is his. Jesus was in this royal line of King David. And these texts are referring to his coming. Secondly, Matthew mentions four women in this genealogy. Tamar, verse 3, sexually abused by Judah, who thought her to be a prostitute. Rahab, verse 5, who was a prostitute in the days of Jericho's defeat. Ruth, verse 5, a Moabite, whose nation was under God's curse, and Bathsheba, who was identified by David's sin in killing her husband Uriah, so he could have her for himself. Verse 6. Now i got to tell you that women were never named in genealogies. But here they are. And some, as in the case of Tamar and Rahab, sexually exploited and won Ruth, whose people group was forbidden to enter into God's worship. Let me read it for you. No Ammonite or Moabite of any of its descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come out to meet you with bread and water on your way up from Egypt. And they hired Balaam, a son of Beor, to pronounce a curse on you. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 and following. And last but not least, Bathsheba, the unnamed wife of Uriah, whom David had killed in battle to cover up his sin. Three of these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, were Gentiles. Yet here they are. In the genealogy of Christ, the Jewish Messiah and King. How can that be? Well, we are reminded that in the kingdom of God, and I'm reading scripture, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3, 26 and following. So just to recap, the constituency of Jesus' kingdom is the 12 tribes of Jacob, Judah being the lion and the promised ruler, four women representing both their female sex and their Gentile status. Now thirdly, good and righteous kings are listed. David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, verse 6 and following, but also wicked kings. Jehoram, verse 8, Manasseh, verse 10. The chronicle writer says, Jehoram received a letter from Elijah the prophet which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of Asa, king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves, just as the house of Ahab did. You have also murdered your own brothers, mothers, members of your father's house, men who were better than you. And so now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels. The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah. They invaded it. They carried off all the goods in the kingdom's palace together with his sons, his wives. Not a son was left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest. And after all this, the Lord inflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. And in the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no fire in his honor, as they had done for his fathers. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years, so that makes him 42 years old when he died. So, excuse me, 40 years old. It says he passed away to no one's regret. He was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Second Chronicles 21, verse 12 and following. Terrible way to end one's life, isn't it? To be an enemy of God. To be judged by God. Second Kings 21 speaks of Manasseh. It says in verse 10, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts. He worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, 
of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole that he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. This Manasseh was something. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That is a phenomenal statement when you think about it. Let me read it again. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Second Chronicles 33, verse 9. What a terrible, terrible, horrendous, evil legacy. Yet here he is. Here he is in the pedigree record of Christ. Fourthly, the constituency in Christ's kingdom are the captives. Verse 11 mentions the exile to Babylon. This is a reference to the utter downfall of Jerusalem and the swallowing up of the kingdom by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, of whom we read in 2 Kings 25, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire on to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had come over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. 2 Kings 25, verse 8-12. through 12. So all the intelligent people, all of the aristocracy, they're killed or taken away in captivity. Matthew lists some of the post-exilic captives which God brought back out of Babylonian captivity to build, rebuild Jerusalem. Some we know, others we don't. Jeconiah, Zerubbabel, others are people of little consequence, among whom is a man called Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah, verse 16. There are a number of skipped generations here in Matthew's account because Matthew is keeping things simple by working only with select generations and each in groups of 14. So verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Christ. Matthew knows his history, doesn't he? And he uses it to encourage his people that God has a plan for this Christ that's coming, the Messiah. Now there's important lessons here. Number one, the kingdom over which God's son Jesus rules is a kingdom of redeemed sinners. It may seem remarkable that the ruler issuing issuing from Judah, verse 2, would be called Christ. That's uh, the Greek for Messiah, which is the Hebrew, verse 16. He's called, the, the translation of that word is the anointed one. Both, whether you're talking the Greek or talking the Hebrew, Christ means the anointed one. And that implication is anointed by God. He would be born into a family line of rulers who were anything but saints, when you think about it. Sin is everywhere present, beginning with Judah himself, who had an ancestral union with his disguised daughter-in-law, whom he thought was a prostitute. But why is a Hebrew man even involved with a prostitute? Think about that. So he's guilty on so many accounts. This immoral conduct is further heightened by David's adultery with Bathsheba, followed by the orchestrated murder of her husband Uriah so he could get her for his own wife. He used the conventions of war as the instruments of death, placing Uriah in the front line of a battle with full intent that Uriah would not make it out alive. And he was right. Uriah did not make it out of the battle alive. That's premeditated murder. Any way you slice it. Before this, King David's own family consisted of his great-great-grandfather, Salmon, verse 5, who was married to his great-great-grandmother, Rahab, a former prostitute. They had a son, Boaz, who married a Moabite pagan, Ruth. These were his great-grandparents, Obed, his grandfather, Jesse, his father, mother unknown. Wow. What a family tree, huh? Now, as noted, some of the kings who were fostered in the Davidic line were very wicked men. They were. 
Not exactly the kind of relatives one would choose to be part of the family, nor in the royal line of princes and kings. And we wonder how it is that Jesus, God's son, by Holy Spirit conception with Mary, would come into our world with all these sinful characters in his bloodline. I think we're helped greatly in understanding this from the writer of Hebrews that writes this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers, in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might atone for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus was not a pseudo human being no he was a genuine human being with all the characteristics of being human with the exception of sin this is sometimes obscured I think by the way people talk of being human many assume that being human and being a sinner are one and the same When people are caught in a sin, they will sometimes say, well, after all, I'm only human. They are equating being human with being a sinner who violates God's law. But these two, these two ideas were not always one and the same. Think about this. Adam was thoroughly human before he and Eve disobeyed God And fell into sin. Their humanity was summed up in that they were creatures of God. Made in his image. But certainly not gods themselves. As the devil's lie suggested. Eat of the forbidden tree and you will become your own God. Knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 verse 5. The writer of Hebrews tells us of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. To be tempted is not sin, brethren. To yield to temptation is sin.
Jesus was tempted, but he didn't yield. So learn here that Jesus is a totally unique kind of king. He did not spend his days in the royal court sipping Bordeaux wine and eating shrimp cocktails. No, he was out among the people who were poor and despised, often sickly, many suffering, heartbroken, heavily burdened by very oppressive government, including the elite and snobby religious hierarchy of the day. And his evaluation is given later in Matthew 19, where he says, For John, and he's referring to John the Baptist, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, well, he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Matthew 11, verse 18 and 19. And wisdom's message got out among the populace despite these lying criticisms of the messengers. People did hear the gospel. They were convinced of God's truth. They did become disciples, notwithstanding the petty objections of the religious elite. Jesus happily wore the label, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wow, he didn't shy away from that. Jesus was and Jesus is a king for all kinds of sinners. Hallelujah. A spiritual king with spiritual power to transform lives through forgiveness and reconciliation, a changed heart, the empowerment of his own Holy Spirit. It is for sinners that Jesus came. We read when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, so he was listening in, and now he comes into the conversation. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, said Jesus, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2, verse 16 and 17. So what we have in Jesus' genealogy are redeemed sinners. Yeah. That's why they're there. But these redeemed sinners were and are, can I say it very forcefully, they were and they are repentant sinners. Take a look, a look at the sinners listed in our text. Judah, verse 3. 
slept with his widowed daughter-in-law who had disguised herself as a prostitute and as a result became pregnant by him. And as a fee for the sex, he had promised a goat. But Tamar required a token gift till the goat was delivered. Remember this account. So he gave her his, his seal and his staff. Genesis 38 verse 18. So when the servants brought the goat, Tamar, no longer dressed as a prostitute, was nowhere to be found. Three months later, Judah was informed that his daughter-in-law was pregnant by prostitution, and he planned to execute her. I'll take care of this. But she produced his seal and his staff, exposing Guess what? His sin. And here was Judah's confession when it was revealed. She is more righteous than I. What a, what a, what a great confession. And it says he would not sleep with her again. Brethren, that's confession, but it's also repentance. You don't just say things, you do things to show that your heart has been changed. She's more righteous than I, and he would not sleep with her again. Judah became a changed man. And rightly so. Well, what about Rahab, the prostitute? When Joshua's army approached Palestine, he sent spies into the land to scope out its defense. And the spies were hidden by Rahab, whose testimony to them, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og. And when we heard of it, our hearts sank. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God. In heaven above and on earth below. This is Rahab. She's testifying. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Joshua 2, verse 10 and following. In the history reports, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Joshua 6 verse 25. Well, what happened to Rahab, the prostitute? She married a, a man named Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, who became the mother of Boaz. She's marrying now. She's no more prostitution. And God's commentary is given for her in James chapter 2. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were 
disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31. How so? She was a repentant sinner. That's how so. What about Ruth, a Moabite pagan, banned from worship of Jehovah because of her people's persecution of Israel? When her husband died, Naomi, her mother-in-law, instructed her to find another husband while she intended to return while she intended to return to Bethlehem. But Ruth clung to Naomi, and Ruth replied, "Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God." Ruth 1 verse 16. So denouncing her pagan gods and exhibiting faith in the only God there is, the Creator and the Lord. What about David and his sin with the, of adultery with Bathsheba? What about his murder of Uriah? Well, God did judge David and Bathsheba by taking the child of his adulterous affair. The child died. And we have two psalms in the book of Psalms composed by David in which he confessed his sin. In Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, the first 12 verses. That's confession. Yes, but is this the proof of repentance? Hmm. In his old age, King David suffered from hypothermia. So his servants started to pile the covers on him to try to keep him warm. It didn't work. So the next thing they did is they searched out for a beautiful woman to sleep with David, intending to use the heat of passion to warm the king. Her name was Abishag. We read she took care of the king. She waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations 
with her. 1 Kings 1, verse 14. Brethren, you know what that is? That's repentance. That's repentance. Not continuing to do what he did before. What about this horrible king, Manasseh? He was a horrible king, by the way. He restored Baal worship, the Asherah worship that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He worshiped the stars. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination. I'm reading scripture. Practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. Whose legacy was that he led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That is quite a statement when you think about it. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9. I mean, brethren, if there were ever a lost cause, Manasseh seems to fill the bill. But I want you to observe the mercy of the Lord. God sent commanders to defeat him and to take him captive to Babylon. And we read in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord as God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, and he listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem. That's out of captivity now. He brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he got rid of the foreign gods. He removed the images from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars that he had built on the temple hill in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed and fellowship, did fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Brethren, that's repentance. Second Chronicles 33, verse 12 and following. The genealogy of Jesus as king includes redeemed sinners. They're in his genealogy. Redeemed sinners for whom then as now Jesus' blood and righteousness became theirs by faith. And those wicked sins and rebellion towards God were forgiven. And as a result of repentance, notable changes in their lives proved their faith genuine and God's grace sufficient. They weren't just going through the motion. It was genuine. 
I say to you all this morning, the blessing is promised to you as well. This is what the Lord says. I'm reading scripture. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I'm the first. I'm the last. Apart from me, there's no God. Who then is like me? Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, verse 6 and following. How can he do that? Because he is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. The creator of the universe can redeem whom he will. And he does. He can set people free who have been captive to sin all of their lives. He can free them from that through repentance and faith, both of which are his gifts. So if you're struggling this morning with the fact that you're a sinner and not living a life that's pleasing to God, the charge comes from the gospel account. Come unto Christ, all ye are laboring with heavy burdens, and I will give you peace. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly. That's our Christ. That's our Savior. May God grant us repentance and faith. We think of especially of the coming of the Christ at Christmas season. But he came for a purpose. We'll have more to say in this series as we go forth. Lord, thank you for your word. Stir our hearts today. Set people who are captive by sin... Please set them free. Simply may they come in repentance and faith. May they trust you. May they not think within themselves, oh, I'm okay. Help them to see that you have declared them to be sinners in need of your grace and mercy. But if they won't seek it, if they won't repent, There will be no grace, there will be no mercy, but only judgment and a certainty of fire. I pray, Lord, that you will work in people's hearts. I would not want to face the precipice of hell in my own righteousness and think that somehow I could avoid it. But thanks be to Christ who went to hell and back for his people. That he paid their debt. He took their judgment. And he is willing to do that for any 
who confess him in faith and repentance. No one will do this on their own, Lord. You have to work it in their heart. Please do it. You did it for us. Do it for someone else today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is in the Trinity, the, the uh, Trinity hymn on 196. 196. When we're done with this hymn, I'm going to ask Phil if he would lead us in a prayer for Clara May. The notation I've gotten here about her is she is now infected in both legs. These are blood infections. Very deadly. Yeah. So Phil will pray as we, after we sing this hymn together. 196. Let's stand and sing.
Yes, Lord. This woman has served you faithfully for many, many years, Lord. Suffered at the loss of family and her husband. Yet she always dedicated herself to the service of us in the church. And as she's laid aside now, Lord, and she's lowly and she's hurting, body full of infection, Lord, I pray that you would intercede in this woman's life, mm. that you comfort her with your Holy Spirit, that you would have your hand upon her and ease the pain that she endures and suffers, that she know, Lord, that you are there with her in Amen. these moments of distress. Father, we pray that you hold her up and bind her close, and that you embrace this woman loyal servant of yours, an example of what a godly and Christian woman has been. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.